We come this morning to our sermon passage as our living God speaks in His Word. And we're beginning our sermon series in the book of Galatians. So what a great place to start. Galatians 1, 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. We'll be in the first five verses of Galatians this morning. Um, So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you've got your phone or it's printed for you in your bulletin. Galatians 1, 1 through 5. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank, it, I thank you that you uh, give it to us to show us who you are and what you're about and so to show us who we are and what we are to be about. So I pray, Lord, this morning as we stare into the riches and the treasure of your word that you would move upon our heart by your spirit to make us aware of your love for us, to open the eyes of our hearts to see the power of the gospel, to fix our eyes on you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're in the book of Galatians, or the epistle, which just means letter. If you've ever seen that word, uh, epistle, it just means letter. Um, The letter to the Galatians. And it was written by a man called the Apostle Paul. He identifies himself in the first verse there. And as we go through Galatians in the next few months, we're going to learn a lot more about Paul. He actually talks about himself a whole lot in the short letters, just six chapters long. But he talks about himself a whole lot, not to make a, a whole lot out of himself. He's not trying to impress anybody. But he presents his story. He tells the story of who he is as an example of someone who has been found by the love of God in Jesus. He basically gives an autobiography to explain his point in this book. It's significant because this man is a key figure in the early church. There's 27 books in the New Testament and Paul wrote 13 of them. So that's, that's a lot of work that God did through his pen. But he didn't just write. He wasn't just a, you know, a, a, some scholar in an ivory tower writing and sending out these letters. No, he was active. He was going across the entire Roman Empire and planting churches in all these different places across his known world. But in the book of Galatians, which is maybe his very first letter that we have, the oldest one, Paul sets the tone for what makes the Christian faith, utterly unlike every other religion or message in this world. He sets the tone by showing, in sometimes extreme language, the centrality of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel. Uh, The author, Tim Keller, wrote this way. In this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is the way to live as part of the kingdom. It is the way that Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. The gospel, the A to Z of the Christian life, not the ABCs, the whole thing. The gospel, not just the front door into the house, the gospel is the whole house. Not just the on-ramp to the highway, it's the whole thing. 
The gospel is the whole deal, which of course leads us to the question, well, what is the gospel? That's a word that we use a lot, not just in the church, but everywhere else. What is the gospel? Well, gospel is a word that means good news. It's from an old Greek word that means literally good news. And in the ancient world, it was like a report of something that had happened, a report of good news, an announcement. For instance... Let's say you're a member of the Roman Empire and there's some outside folks that are, you know, uh, bothering the, the empire. There's this army coming that you know that you and your village can't handle. Caesar sends out an army of his own to go match them and defeats them. An announcer would come, a herald would come into your town to announce gospel. Good news that this army that you couldn't handle had been defeated. It was an announcement. The thing that had potentially threatened you has been taken care of, and you don't need to worry about it anymore. That's the announcement. That's the gospel. So when we speak about the gospel of Jesus, what we're talking about is the announcement of a victory accomplished by Him that has huge implications for us. The gospel, at its core, is a report of something that someone else has done. That's key for us to understand. And in our church, we've written it out and spoke about the gospel this way, that the gospel is the good news that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has worked to bring forgiveness, transformation, and hope into our world that is marred by sin. So again, the gospel is a victory that we haven't contributed anything to that has huge implications for us, that changes everything for us. Now, I'm going to hammer this point home because too often the Bible and Jesus are not presented as good news at all. It's presented as good advice. It's presented as good advice, not good news. Not good news of a victory accomplished, good advice of some stuff for you to do. You know, we've heard the acronym Bible, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Maybe you've seen that before. Sometimes it's cross-stitched. You could probably find it at a Hobby Lobby if you go on like a pillow or something. Um, but the idea is that, uh, you know, that essentially what we have in the Bible is a moral encyclopedia. So I need to know what I need to think about this topic and so I can flip here and find this, this entry. Okay, that's what I think about this. That's what I think about this. Now, Scripture does have instruction for us. It does have teaching for us. It does teach us how to live. But all of that is subsumed and springs out of the main point of Scripture. That guidance flows out of the main story of Scripture, which are the actions of God on our behalf. And when we treat the Bible like it's primarily good advice, we will miss the point entirely. It's like watching a movie and thinking a side character is the main character. We're missing the point entirely. When we treat the good news of Jesus more like good advice from Jesus, we will toil away trying to be good or perfect and never make it. We will toil away trying to earn what is already ours in Jesus. What you'll do is you'll try to be good enough for God to like you, thinking that you need to prove yourself to Him to make Him like you or love you. You'll build an image, a religious costume. As I like to say, church is not cosplay, but boy, we treat it like it is. We dress up. 
to build an image, to make other people think well of us, and to maybe think, uh, <laughs> make God think well of us. And we'll treat Jesus like he came to give us some good advice about being a good person. And so every time we will open the scriptures then, we will not find freedom because we will not find a report of what God has done because He loves us, what we'll do is we'll open up Scripture and we'll find condemnation. In our image from earlier, the difference between good news and good advice, you know, I spoke about your a Roman citizen and the army has defeated these people who are standing against you and it's announced to you and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, so often Christianity is presented as actually somebody coming to town and saying, there's this massive army that you cannot handle coming your way. Here's the best way to build up your defenses. Good luck. If you hear me say nothing else this morning or in the rest of this Galatians series, hear this. The gospel is not good advice. Jesus did not arrive into this world to give you a list of stuff to do to be a good person. He is not a self-help expert. He is not a guru. Jesus is a victorious king who came to defeat every enemy that stands against your good and he announces to you that victory. This is the key thing that makes Christianity worth it. He is a victorious king and he announces to us that victory and he invites us to live from that. To stop trying to build up defenses thinking it's all dependent on us but to trust in his victory. In Jesus, God has done something objective apart from us contributing anything to it. And he makes it known to us and he applies it to us subjectively so that we can find our entire hope, all of our confidence, all of our strength in Him. Good news, not good advice. In fact, say that with me. What is the gospel? It is good news, not good advice. The difference between those two things cannot be bigger. It's why I'm hitting this so hard. Because a way of thinking about God that sees Him as giving us good advice can only really lead to bondage. Because our good intentions run out. Our energy and strength run out. Good advice can only carry us so far. And when our intentions and energy run back, we are left back at square one. We're at the beginning of a new year and we just made resolutions last week, right? We're going back to the gym. You know the number one uh, time for gym membership purchase is the first week of January. And most of those memberships are lapsed by March. We said, I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to read it in a year, and I'm going to do three chapters a day, and we're already two days behind, right? I could keep going on the resolutions we make, but what do resolutions tend to have? They have some rootedness in me turning over a new leaf, me deciding I'm going to use my energy to do this thing. Now, I'm not saying deciding to go down a different path is a bad thing, but when we treat Jesus like he's really just the guy that gives us better New Year's resolutions, we're going to miss who he is entirely. We're going to miss God's heart. Now, I am hitting this so hard because confusing the gospel for good advice is one of the most dangerous things in our cultural Christianity. We live in what people call the Bible Belt. 
church on every corner. Most every home has a Bible in it. And if you start talking to somebody, even if they haven't gone to church in their life, and you start talking to them about what they believe, they're eventually, most of the time, going to hit on something about Jesus and God. It's kind of in the air here, in the water. But when we dig deeper, when we dig deeper in our homes, in our hearts, even in our churches, I think that more often than not, we find a way of thinking and talking about God that sees Him more like a Father whose love is conditional. That we have to live up to this family name. And if we mess up, we have to prove to Him that we're really sorry and we won't do it again. Otherwise, He's going to kick us out of the house or He's going to beat us or He's going to give up on us. I saw a film a couple of weeks ago called The Iron Claw, and it's so good. Um, it's about this family of professional wrestlers. So there was this professional wrestler named Fritz von Erich in the 50s. He had a number of sons, and in the 70s and 80s, they were a big deal in pro wrestling, the von Erich family. And he had so many expectations for his sons. He trained them from as, as young as they could be to prepare them to be athletes, to prepare them eventually to be professional Wrestlers And all of his sons wilted under his expectations because they knew, he even told them, his love was conditional. Early in the movie, they're sitting at the kitchen table eating breakfast, and he's trying to motivate his sons to try harder. And this is what he says. Everybody knows that Carrie's my favorite. That's one of his sons. Then Kevin, and then David, and then Mike. But the rankings can always change. So work hard, boys. He says that to encourage them to try harder. Carrie's my favorite. Then Kevin, then David, then Mike. But the rankings can always change. How many of us think of God this way? That God clearly has his favorites. But if we really hard, work hard and we try our best, we can maybe move up in his rankings. And that scripture gives us good advice about how to move up in those rankings. But at the end of the day, it's up to us. This is spiritual poison. It is spiritual poison and it runs through our cultural Christianity in the Bible Belt. Thinking of God this way, thinking of us this way, will destroy our hearts. And this is not what Jesus came to make happen. This is not the gospel that turned Paul's hearts inside out and changed his life. This is not the gospel, period. Something like that is not worth getting up on Sunday morning to go to worship, much less giving our lives to. But the good news of the gospel is that God came to us in Christ to do what we could not. That it's not up to us. That we are saved by grace and grace alone. In Ephesians 2, it talked about we were spiritually dead. Unable to do anything. And while we were dead, He made us alive in Christ Jesus. And we are saved by His grace. Not by works. God has made a home for us with Him that He will not snatch away. Your room in His home is not conditional. Your place in His heart is not conditional. He doesn't look at you and say, why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like your sister? There aren't rankings. I said it earlier in my prayer from Zephaniah. It speaks about God thinking of His people and He hears their name. He has to stand up and dance because He is so overjoyed with the light in who we are.
Is that our conception of God? When we pause and allow our hearts to think about, what does God think of me? How quick are we to go, I bet he really hates that three-year period when I was doing this thing. I bet he really wishes I was further down the line. Do you think that the Father absolutely delights in you? I don't, honestly. But we are kept and we are held and we are carried along by God's intentions for us, His love for us. It is not entirely up for us, up to us. And our confidence is this. When Jesus died on the cross for us, He didn't just open a doorway of possibility that maybe salvation would possibly find us. No, He accomplished salvation. When Jesus said it is finished, He meant it. There was a period on the end of that sentence. And when God's grace finds us, we are given entirely all the benefits of that, and it's 100% the work of God. Friends, if we treat what Jesus does as good advice, we will try to toil away and earn something that's already ours by faith. And if we miss this, we will warp God's word to be tools in our own hands. If we miss this, we will miss who God is, and so we will miss who we are because of who he is. But... Here's the good news of the good news. If we get this, if we get this, if our hearts are won by this, not just one time, but over and over again, and when doubts creep into our mind, when we mess up and mess up big, and we can think, no, the Father delights in me, and Jesus is the proof, when we get this, it will absolutely transform everything. It will change everything about who we are individually. It will change everything about our church. It could change our community. It will transform everything. The good news is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that God has worked, not for us to work, but God has worked to bring forgiveness, transformation, and hope. That's what Paul's emphasizing in verse 3 and 4. Notice he pronounces on them grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. This isn't just Paul saying, hey y'all, hope you're doing well. This isn't just like a standard letter greeting. What Paul's doing is declaring that in our world that is marked by sin and violence, marked by pain and suffering, that is darkness as we read about in Isaiah 9, that is spiritually dead as we saw in Ephesians 2, God has broken in like an invading army in Jesus to make something else happen. In his words, God has rescued us from, quote, this present evil age by breaking in to secure for us grace and peace. What Paul later calls in Galatians a new creation, a new age. Now this idea is deeply rooted in the Old Testament of what God was doing. If you go back and you read the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll hear them talk about uh, the day of the Lord. Their idea of how history works as we live in this present evil age, that God's going to work at some decisive day in the future, and then this uh, age of peace will happen. And they're, they're very divided. You've got the present evil age, and then you've got this future age where the power of sin is, uh, is overcome. That God's going to arrive and judge things rightly, set things right, and His righteous anger and His wrath will be poured out on all who oppose Him and His grace. But remarkably what has happened in Jesus is that God did come, but not in condemnation for us. 
God's wrath was poured out, but not on us. God's wrath was poured out on Himself in the person of His Son by His own choice, out of His love for us. That God satisfies His wrath by taking it on to Himself. Jesus is the Son of God, God from God, who took on a human nature to face what we never could without being swallowed up. And in doing all of this for us, He has absorbed every bit of wrath for our sins, every bit of condemnation, every bit of possible judgment against us. So that His justice would be satisfied by Him experiencing it itself so we don't have to. I want to pause there. There's no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. I don't know everything you've done, thought, or said. I know everything I've thought. Well, I don't know everything. My memory's not that good. I know some terrible things I've thought and done and said. That if I was to recount them here, you'd leave for another church. No. That bring me great guilt and shame. But did you know that me, Tim Inman, I am righteous in the sight of God. And there is no condemnation for me ever. Ever. There is love for me. And that's it. It's a glorious thing. The same is true of you. same is true of you. Jesus came to save. And in doing so, he has uh, established essentially an in-between time. That Old Testament conception of a present evil age, God interrupts and then... Uh, judges, and then this uh, age of restoration happens. God has instituted in Christ this in-between time. This already but not yet. Where the redemption and victory of God has already happened and has already been secured, but it's not yet fully seen. It's like a basketball team being up by 25 points in the final minute. Like, they're going to win, but you've got to play out the minute. I had to turn the NBA games off the other day because all of them were like 20-point spreads in the last minute. I'm like, I can't do this. There's still a game to be played, and the players will still pass and shoot, but the outcome is sure. We're in this in-between time where the victory's already accomplished, and God right now is applying it, and the fullness of it is yet to be seen. One scholar, and I've talked about this before, I read, talked about it in terms of World War II and D-Day. So on June 6, 1944, the Allied troops, mostly U.S. and British, landed on Normandy, uh, Omaha Beach, in France. The Nazis had uh, conquered France and been kind of in control of it for years. And as the Allied, you can see it, you know, Saving Private Ryan, that's the opening minutes, is the landing on this beach. And the moment they were able to establish a beachhead, the moment they were able to gain control, the war was over as far as what would happen. It was sure. The Allied troops were now in Europe. They were going to be able to march to Berlin. They would take down the Nazi war machine. It was over. There's no way Germany would be able to stop that Allied army from conquering them. That was the death blow that decided the war. But it was not until 11 months later, May of 45, that the Allied troops actually did go into Berlin and the war was over. That victory was finally seen, finally declared then. But when they landed in, May, in June 44, there were prisoners to set free. There was a march 
that needed to happen. There were territories to set free. There were armies to vanquish. That victory was sure. But there were steps between the landing and the sure final death blow and the end of the war. In a similar way, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is D-Day for the kingdom of God. Jesus has accomplished this victory over Satan, over the power of sin, over death, and it's all sure. His love has broken into his, this world and will never leave, but there are prisoners to set free. We stand this morning 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, and I am certainly glad that, that, <laughs> that His grace has marched through our world to find me. There's prisoners to set free. There are territories for the gospel to go to. And where we live in the here and now is between that D-Day and that victory day, that final consummation of victory, where the kingdom of God progresses. And we, through our lives, proclaim the victory of Jesus and wait for it to arrive in its fullness. And how do we proclaim the victory of Jesus? It's not, you know, we're on the front end, and I'm going to preach some more about this later. We're on the front end uh, of 2024, which is going to be a presidential election year. I'm dreading it too. Four years ago was horrible. Eight years ago was horrible. And it's going to be the same this year. It's going to be the same kind of rhetoric. It's going to be the same kind of people standing on podiums telling you to believe lies about people you know. It's going to be people calling for allegiance and asking for you to put flags up and bumper stickers on your car, etc., 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 we do not live out the victory of Jesus by grabbing for power. There's going to be preachers that try to do that and say, if, I lack, if our church latches on to this person, then we will be victorious, then we will be saved, then Christianity will now be okay. That's not the way we proclaim victory. We don't proclaim victory by being people who say, I'm going to name it and claim it. I want that Lamborghini. I name it by faith. It's mine. We're laughing, but there's preachers on TV that will tell you that is how to live out the victory of Jesus in the here and now. Go chase your best life now. The way we proclaim the victory of Jesus is we live like people who believe the gospel's true because it is. We stop judging ourselves and condemning ourselves because Jesus decided not to condemn us. We don't chase after sin and selfishness anymore. We treat other people like the gospel's true. We recognize that people that may get on our nerves, people that we think aren't worth resources, people that we think have used every second chance they've ever gotten are still worth dignity and respect and love and kindness because they're created in the image and likeness of God and they are the type of people that Jesus died and came to save and set free. That's how we proclaim the victory of Jesus in this in-between time where we have these promises that, that God is going to fulfill in ways that we cannot imagine. So in the here and now, grace and peace are ours right now. In part now, we only see it in glimpses. Yet we know that the end goal is God's victory. That that grace and peace will characterize all of his fallen creation. And this is the very center of who we are. This is the very center of who we are individually. This is to be the center of who we are as a church. And if we lose this... We might as well close up shop. This is why we exist. Because if this isn't true, the kind of community that we're pursuing together is built on a faulty foundation. 
Because the church, I'm closing here, we're not a social club. We may have a lot of the same interests and experiences, and that's great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But the core of what a church is, is a community that's being changed together by the truth of the gospel. Where we come back time and time again to remind each other. Where we embody in our person the reality of the gospel. Where we're there for each other. Where we know others and love them. Where we are known and loved. A place where we are learning together what it means to live in this already but not yet time. Now as we go through the book of Galatians in the next few months, we're going to see the Apostle Paul argue sometimes very, very passionately. Sometimes even rudely (laughs) about what's going on in the churches from the people he wrote this letter to. But as we see that, it's not Paul being a mean guy. It's not because he's offended because they don't respect him. It's because they are in danger of losing the centerpiece of the gospel and trading in the good news for good advice and in doing that, losing the plot entirely. So as we're reading through Galatians, may we hear his passion for this and take it to heart as well. Because friends... Our hope isn't anything about us. It's not a resume we bring to the table to impress people. It's not a rap sheet of stuff for us to be ashamed of. Our hope is only that God has worked and is at work. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. This centerpiece of, of your kingdom. This A to Z of the Christian life. The whole deal. I thank you that you have found us out in your grace that you are setting us free, that you are teaching us to come back to who you say we are time and time again and to never leave that behind. So I pray, Lord, this morning and as we continue on in this sermon series in the spring, that you would impress upon our hearts that we may grow more and more in dependence on you and not ourselves. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.